Well, the Apostle Paul, or St. Paul, was the central figure in early Christianity after Jesus. It's no understatement to say and to think that you and I, and we're here together talking about Jesus and knowing him, we, we know this in part because of Paul's work, because of his missionary work. He took the gospel out of the Jewish context just in Palestine, and he spread it throughout the Roman Empire. He preached it all over. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Paul was a Roman citizen, born in Tarsus, the town of Tarsus, which was on the southeastern coast of modern Turkey. You may not have heard of Tarsus, and that's okay, but in the Roman Empire, it was a thriving metropolis, a port city and a center of culture and philosophy. It was a happening place, just as we would think of the West Coast in North America, like Vancouver even, a place of cultural advancement and progressive ideas, the greenest city by 2020. This was Tarsus, maybe not that, but. Paul lived in this world. He grew up learning and knowing the Greek language. It was the common language of the Roman Empire, the language of trade. He knew the philosophies and the religions of his cultural moment. In Tarsus, a particular school of philosophy that was very popular was Stoicism. The Stoic philosophers taught that fate ruled one's destiny. It controlled everything. And emotions were the enemy for the person and revealed their weakness. So for the Stoics, living an independent, compassionless life, not tangled in emotion, but committed to the pure values of reason and calculated justice, this was virtue, living at an arm's length from the messiness of the world. Strands of Stoic philosophy, you may not be surprised, are still alive today. And, and as I said, learning to live at that arm's length away from the messiness of relationships, of the brokenness of the world, is how you develop an inner peace. There's many popular books around even today that suggest this and that guide us towards this philosophy. And it was no different from Paul. These things were really originated in the thinking of his day. In some ways, his culture was similar to ours. But Paul was different. He was this Roman citizen. He did grow up in Tarsus. But there was something very unique about him in that city. And that's that he was a Jew. He was also Jewish. He grew up as a minority Worshipping the one God amidst the pluralistic scene of philosophies and religions in Tarsus. Paul's faith reflected something different, different beliefs, that there was only one God, that this God was good, and, this, and, and that this God cared about and loved his creation. The centering prayer on Paul's lips as a young boy growing up would have been the Shema, which is the core prayer and heart cry of every Jew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Now, Paul was no nominal Jew, though, either. He was a passionate scholar as he grew up. He studied the scriptures. He became an expert in studying the traditions of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He really knew this stuff. He had a PhD in the Hebrew scriptures, you could say. In his youth, Paul left Tarsus to go and study in Jerusalem under one of the leading rabbis of the first century named Gamaliel. He was a scholar. Paul became this poster boy of Jewish faith. He knew the story. He was committed to following Torah. He was so zealous about it. And by the time he was an adult, he had risen the ranks of religious elites in Jerusalem. He was, in, in his own words, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as to the law, blameless. 
So what did Paul do when he heard about some Jews in Jerusalem proclaiming the name Jesus and saying that he was Lord, that he was divine, and claiming that this Jesus was actually the one who came to fulfill Israel's hopes for salvation? What did he do? Unsurprisingly, and you may know the story, he was enraged. He spoke murderous threats against these heretics called Christians, and he brought his zeal to stamping out the sect. Why? Well, if the Lord God is one, which he knew to be true, then how could this Jesus person also be divine? And Paul knew his Bible. Deuteronomy 21, 23 clearly said that anyone who hung from a tree was cursed by God. And Jesus had certainly done this, so he must be cursed. These followers of Jesus had to be silenced. They were crazy. Paul's zeal about these issues wasn't just relegated to theological debates or Facebook rants, <laughs> as it happens today. It wasn't like that. It was real. It took, it took on flesh in his life. He stood by as Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned to death. Now hear again these words that we read from Colossians 1.15. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now how did this Jew from Tarsus, this Hellenist, this PhD in the scriptures, this Roman citizen and passionate scholar, this brilliant teacher, how did he come to write such a thing? A statement that he believed deserved death. Well, after Stephen was stoned, after he stood by and watched it and approved of it, Saul headed to another town called Damascus. And he had a warrant there to stamp out the Christian uprisings. This guy was a bull in a china shop. He was going full steam ahead to take care of all the Christians and to end this sect. He was leading the charge to defend the integrity of his faith that was religiously motivated. But something happened on the road to Damascus, didn't it? Something happened that was miraculous. Paul saw the Lord. He saw Jesus Christ. And the, the Christ, the risen Christ, appears to Paul, appears to him, and asks him the humblest question that you could think of. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And this was not just an internal voice or internal experience. His eyes were blinded from the encounter. He couldn't see. His friends around him heard a booming from heaven, a loud noise. Paul meets Jesus in this moment. He met Jesus, and you know what happens. His life turns 180 degrees, and all of that effort and energy and passion that went towards pursuing Christians turned right around and was directed to Jesus. He meets Jesus, and he sees the very glory of God face to face. He meets Jesus, and he encounters someone who is more than he could have ever imagined. We'll just pause for a moment and say, there is no limit to what can happen when someone meets Jesus in their lives. Well, do you know what Paul does after this? He does something we often miss, even if we're familiar with the story. He goes away into Arabia, into the wilderness, he says in Galatians 1, for nearly three years. Three years, he goes away. And we don't actually know what he did during this time. He doesn't write about it. But I see him wrestling with God in the wilderness struggling to understand this encounter that he's had with the risen Lord. What does it mean? If Jesus is Lord, 
is God's son, what does it mean for everything that he knew and believed about life, faith, and God? He could have had a wicked alpha course in this time, I think. He had big questions, really big questions. Did you get that? Alpha's coming up in September. Paul spent most of his life after this, we know, preaching about Jesus, planning churches and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God all over the Roman Empire. So he must have had some special times of the Holy Spirit in the wilderness there. During this preaching, his, his ministry, he was scorned. He was beaten. He was thrown into prison many times, and yet he still went about it. Well, this is Paul. This is the one who, in a later stage of his life, while in prison, penned the words we read this morning in a letter to the church in Colossae, who wrote this beautiful acclamation of praise to Jesus. I spent all of this time exploring who Paul is and telling you about him, introducing to you again, because it's worth knowing where he's coming from and who wrote this letter to get the essential starting place of what he's saying in this little hymn, which is really the thesis statement to the whole book of Colossians, and it's very audacious to try to preach in one sermon. So there's a lot that, this is deep waters. This is deep waters. And there's a lot that we're not going to go into. It's really beautiful. So we're just going to try to get his big point today. Now, to a Colossian church battling voices who are saying that Jesus isn't that important. Who are saying Jesus probably isn't divine. And to a Roman culture around that said, worshiping a crucified criminal who claimed to be a king well, that's embarrassing at best and worth shame and death at worst if you take it too seriously because we all know there's only one king, which is Caesar. Well, to this time and place, the Apostle Paul, now an older weathered man in prison, sitting in prison, he blows them away with this little hymn. He says, church, Jesus is more than you've ever imagined. I've met him. I know him. I saw him face to face. And you know what happened? He turned my life upside down. That's our main idea today. Jesus is more than you and I have ever imagined. They needed a fresh breath of the glory and grandeur of God. And Paul gives it to him. He goes for it. Now he says four things about Jesus in this little passage. The first two say who Jesus is, and the second two tell us about some of the implications of it. So listen carefully. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. And in him, all things were created. And in him, all things are being redeemed. You get that? So he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In him, all things were created. And in him, all things are being redeemed. He is the, he is the image of the invisible God. Let's start there. Paul knew the invisible God. His name is Yahweh. He was the God whom Paul had worshipped and followed his whole life. The God of the Jews, who was one, who delivered the people of Israel from Egypt and promised them a hope and a future. Paul was very familiar with the invisible God. Paul also knew that this is the God who refused to be cast into an image. Go in any other temple in, the ancient, in ancient Rome or in Egypt or in Babylon, and what would you find right at the center? An image. A depiction of the God where the deity's presence was thought to dwell, where they, were, where they located the worship in the, in the image. Not for Yahweh. Throughout Israel's history, we see him refusing to be imaged. He commanded the people not to make an image of him. 
not to cast him in a mold of wood or precious metal or stone. The second commandment of the Ten Commandments, right? The gods imaged by these materials are lifeless, and those who worship them become like them, says the psalmist. It's very, very clear, Psalm 115. I'll read it for you. The psalmist says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So Paul knew that there was no image of the invisible God. His God was different than these. This was blasphemy. Then the devout Hebrew, the committed Pharisee, then he meets Jesus and sees something he'd never imagined. Yahweh, his God, he saw him, the invisible God, the God of his fathers, now looking him in the eye on the road to, in the road to Damascus and saying, my son, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The invisible God was now visible. The one creator God, the living God, had been waiting to show the world his image by entering to creation himself. To look women and men in the eyes and say things like, I am the way and the truth and the life. This God can only be imaged by himself, nothing else. In a miracle where God joined himself with the work of his hands to become human taking on a mouth that speaks, eyes that see, ears that hear, a nose that smells. God took on all of these, hands that feel and touch and even heal, feet that walked the dusty roads of Palestine in a throat too, a throat through which the voice of God spoke and said things like, arise, your sins are forgiven. The time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news. And of course, I will be with you always even to the end of the age. He is the image of the invisible God, the God who refused to be imaged by man-made objects, writes Paul. We now know what God looks like, what he sounds like, what he acts like. Jesus has shown us. But there's more. This is just the first thing that Paul says. And the second thing, the second thing about who Jesus is, is that he is the firstborn of all creation. So he's the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Now, in the ancient context, the significance of the firstborn can't be overstated. The firstborn received the inheritance of the family. They were held in highest regard. The firstborn male carried on the family lineage. Remember the firstborn in Jesus' parable to the, of the prodigal son? In this context, he was robbed of his inheritance rights by his younger brother who went and pilfered it all away. Now, Paul is saying Jesus is the firstborn over every creature, all of creation. And that isn't that he was created first, but that he has authority, that he is Lord over all. Which makes sense, right? If Jesus is the image of the one true God, God himself in flesh, then of course he is Lord over all creation. So these first two things are working together, right? Jesus' unique relationship to God, he's the image of God, and his unique relationship to creation, that he's the firstborn of creation. You can see Paul the theologian out in the wilderness working with these metaphors and trying to say something that surely he fully doesn't even understand either. 
that Jesus is fully God, he's li- but he's, he's God's living and breathing image, and he's fully human as the firstborn of all creation. It's mind-blowing stuff. We could spend all day talking about it and trying to sort that out. We probably won't get it all sorted out, I promise you. That's why Paul's working with these metaphors. He's saying, look at this beautiful mystery. But this is just the beginning of what Paul wants to say. This is who Jesus is. But what does, it, what does it all mean? Why does it matter? Well, he goes on to two further audacious claims. In him, all things were created. And in him, all things are being redeemed. What does it mean that all things are created in him? It's very strange things to say. Paul uses this language of being in Christ all over the New Testament. Now, much ink has been spilled about exactly what he means by this, but suffice it to say, he has a close, intimate relationship with Jesus in mind when he says we are in Christ. That's at least what it means. And then when he speaks of all of creation being in Christ, the starting point has to be the same. The whole realm of creation is meant for intimate relationship, for union with Christ. It is a personal creation. It's not a separate creation, a clockmaker creation who makes it and puts it over there to work. No, it's a personal creation gifted to us to enjoy, but also gifted to us in order to draw us back towards the Creator, draw us back into worship and intimacy with Him. There is a purpose in God's creation. I know this is hard to understand, so consider a simple creation example with me. We have this cross right here. This beautiful, simple cross was crafted for our congregation by a man named Brian Salter. His daughter is leading the liturgy today. He created it for this church to play a role in our worship. The wood right here came from a black walnut tree in his backyard in Summerlin, B.C., He designed it with intention, with detail. There is even, you may not know, there's an alpha inlaid here and an omega inlaid on this side that you can only see, you're only meant to be able to see from a kneeling position, kneeling in front of it. So you're looking up at the cross, the place of our redemption. Brian designed it. He crafted it and sanded it and coated it and gifted it to us just for our worship. It was made with purpose and personality and by a person who loves Jesus Christ and the church. The creation itself, this physical cross, came forth, really, from his heart, his vision, and his creative skills. It's personal. It was made from his heart. I think Paul is saying something similar about Jesus and creation. It's personal, as in, as in it reflects the personhood of God. It is a sacred gift. All things were made in Christ from his heart, his vision, his creative agency. All things were created for him as well, meaning for his glory, for loving relationship, and to draw us deeper into intimacy with the creator. This means our world, though broken and marred, of course, as it is by sin and evil, it is God's sacred creation. It is his temple, his sacred space. It was made through the vision of the great artist, and it has his fingerprints all over it. It isn't a product of chance, but was created by a personal God who created out of love. 
That means nature or our natural world, as we often say, is really anything but natural, but is a gift from God that pours out its praise to Christ. Even the rivers are clapping their hands. It's not the clockmaker God who sets things in motion and steps away with disinterest. The whole realm of creation is a place known by God, gifted to us by a loving gift giver, and he's holding it in his hands. Remember, God saw all that he made, and he said that it is good. So in Christ, in him, in relationship to him, out of him, all things were created. And in him, all things will be redeemed. Let's return to Paul's words again, verses 18 to 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Well, just as creation is a personal act from a personal God, coming from the heart of Jesus Christ, so is redemption, Paul says. A personal, self-giving act from Jesus with the end, the goal of, for, of reconciliation. You can hear the momentum in Paul's words going as he writes. He's saying, look, it's true. Jesus is more than you've ever imagined. He is the head of the church, which is the community of the people who have been reconciled to God. His blood shed on the cross was not a formulaic act to appease a bloodthirsty God. No, the fullness of God, verse 19 says, dwells in Christ. Thus, the fullness of God shed his blood on the cross. In Christ and in his blood shed, God said, enough, I will intervene. I will suffer with those who suffer and will take the just punishment for all the sin and all the evil in the world upon myself. I descend all the way down. I'm going to come all the way down into the depths and the darkness of, and the, of brokenness and humanity. And I will come all the way down in order to offer life to the dying. I myself will die even on a cross so that I can become not only the firstborn of creation, but also the firstborn from the dead to defeat death and to offer this new gift of life, of eternal life to all who will listen to my voice, says Jesus. Jesus is the great reconciler. In him, the created and the creator, they meet and peace is made. In Christ, shalom is restored to creation. In Christ, the image of God, who we now know is Jesus, and that Genesis tells us that every woman and man is made after or in the likeness of, regardless of race or age or mental capability. In Christ, the image begins to be seen more clearly in each one of us, like a statue being hewn out of a block of marble. Because when we are living in Christ, we insist on treating other people with dignity and seeing the God-given beauty, the image in them, even if it's buried very deeply. And whether the challenge to see God's image for you and others and to treat them this way is with those you live with, your spouse or your kids or your roommate or the other on the street, it's often harder with those closest to us sometimes. Living in Christ means we treat people differently. We respect personhood because each and every person is made in the image of a personal God. 
in Christ, things begin to become again as they ought to be, as they were intended to be. Oh, we got to go back and remember who's writing this. Paul, he knew the cultural stories of Rome. He knew the Hebrew scriptures too so well. Yet for him, he realized that it's all worthless, rubbish even, without Christ. When he realized how personal God is, nothing else mattered but knowing Christ. And he is personal. He's relational. And it mattered for Paul and it matters for us because Jesus has an idea As an abstract God, it doesn't hold up. Jesus is just a good moral teacher, as a saintly example, as an inspiration, as good as these things are. They contradict what Jesus himself claimed to do and to be. And the church who loses sight of Jesus as the Christ, the crucified and the risen Lord, all of a sudden has no gospel to preach, no good news. Because without the resurrection, Jesus was. He was a Jewish rabbi who was crucified and has long been dead. And if this is it, then Paul himself, his own words, said his teaching, meaning Paul's teaching was useless, and your faith is in vain. Your faith and my faith is in vain, if that's it. It's useless because it was no better than the Stoic philosophy Paul grew up with in Tarsus, or the self-help books we can go and buy at chapters today. It's no different. But the old apostle, riding in chains, he wants to tell us something. He's saying, don't reduce Jesus to an idea. Look to Christ. Look to Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's saying, in him and through him and for him, all things were created. And in him and through him and through his blood shed on the cross, all things are being redeemed. And we must look to Christ, the utterly personal God, who we can talk to any time in prayer, who is always listening, and who longs to know each of us, and who longs to be known by each of us.